Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. When you think about the idea of a relationship with God, what metaphor or picture resonates best with you? Maybe it's father with son or daughter. Maybe it's friend with friend or king with subject or servant with master or any one of a number of different things that the Bible gives us all these different pictures to think about what it's like for us to relate to God. Now, I came across this quote by Francis Chan recently. He's an American pastor. And he said this, God is calling you to a passionate love relationship with himself. The answer isn't working hard for a list of do's and don'ts. It's falling in love with God. I wonder how that sits with you. I wonder how that idea, as you hear his words there, how does that resonate with you, Because that's another image the Bible uses. It sometimes talks about relating to God as a picture of the church being called the bride of Christ and him being called the bridegroom. This relationship of love with God is something that the Bible talks about in lots of different places. But probably one more than any other is a little book in the middle of your Bible called the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, it's sometimes known as. And if you want to find it in your Bible, if you've got your Bible with you, the best thing to do is open it somewhere in the middle, and if you happen to open it on Psalms, which is a massive book in the middle, just go forward a little bit, and if you hit Isaiah, which is another massive book in the middle, just go backwards a bit, and it's somewhere sandwiched in between those two. And it's only eight chapters. It's really small, it's really short, and it's just this little book of romantic poetry in the middle of your Bible. And when you come across it, you might think, what the heck's this doing in the middle of my Bible? It's two people speaking to each other, a man and a woman, the lover and the beloved, they are called in the song. And it tends to be understood uh, as a book that's speaking about Jesus and the church and the love that Jesus has for us and the love that we're called to have for him. Now, I just want to share with you a few reasons why we understand it that way, why we read the book like this. I've got five of them. So here's number one. Marriage, just as a, as a thing in the Bible, is something that's meant to point us to Jesus and the church. We see this right throughout. We see in the Old Testament, God will speak to his people in terms of faithfulness or unfaithfulness, like it's a marriage covenant. You can read books like Hosea that develop this theme. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, this was Jesus' best friend, would describe himself as the best man. He says, like, that's who I am. I'm the best man here. And he is the one who's the groom. He's the one that the attention should be on. In the letters in Ephesians, Paul's telling husbands and wives how to relate to each other. And he says, this is all just a picture that points you to Christ and the church. And then right at the end of the book, uh, Revelation, you see the the climax of the whole Bible is the bride of Christ, which is the church, coming down from heaven dressed in white. And we hear about the wedding feast of the Lamb. So throughout the Bible, marriage is pointing us to Jesus and the church. Well, this little book does as well. 
Here's reason number two. All through history, it's been understood this way. All through the history of the church, and even before the church was a thing, all the old school Jewish interpreters, they'd always say this is God and his people. It's only really in the last few decades that you've, get, that you've got people who try and like take all the spiritual stuff out of it and make it just a human-only thing. It's always been understood as about God. Number three, all the images we see, they're picked from different points in the story where people's relationship with God has been closest. So you can find poems in there that pick up on ideas, that paint a picture of the Garden of Eden, or the tabernacle, the temple, the promised land, all these ideas of people being close with God. Number four, Jesus tells us that all of the Old Testament points to him. He was once arguing with the Pharisees, and he said, look, you're searching the scriptures. You think that in them you find life. But actually, they're all about me. You need to come to me to have life. And then fifthly, the very name of the book, the Song of Songs, is a deliberate echo on the idea of the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the place in the temple where God's presence was, where people could meet with God. And it's picking up that same vibe, Holy of Holies, Song of Songs. This is the song where you will meet with God. So what do we have in the Song of Songs? 60% of it is in the voice of the woman, who's called the beloved in there. 30% of it is in the voice of the man, who's called the lover. And the rest of it is in various other voices, their friends or different people around speak into it as well. And usually, depends what translation of the Bible you've got, but most of our translations try and help us out a little bit and give us a hint as to who's talking when. So those bits are just like added in, but they're really helpful just to see what's going on. It's poetry, and it's poetry that works on multiple levels. So uh, let's just have a show of hands. There's no kind of shame here, but has anyone read Song of Songs and it's in your your head? Have you got an idea what's in it? Yeah, for a fair few. You've probably read some bits that, like, when you read them, you're like, there's one level of reading. This is pretty evocative. It's pretty explicit stuff. You'll probably see stuff going on in there that you're like, I could read it this way, but actually it's not crass. It's not... um, kind of distasteful it's done in a a really subtle way it's really uh, good poetry and here's the thing with poetry right when you read poetry in the bible you're usually not supposed to take it literally and if you take song of songs too literally you get into big trouble so i'll give you some examples right when he is trying to describe her appearance using poetry he says that her neck is like a tower Her cheeks are like halves of pomegranates and her lips are like a crimson thread. If you take it too literally, you end up with a very, very, very strange looking person. And then she describes him using similar images. It's meant to convey the way they feel. It's meant to create a sense of emotion, a sense of passion, more than physically describing what's going on. On the other hand, we don't need to completely allegorise every point. So an allegory is where you say, well, this thing must mean something totally different to what it is. So we'll just layer different meanings on it. There there are some crazy allegories out there. You could Google some some of them if you want. I came across one. So... um, This guy, I think it's called Gregory the Great from the 6th century, uh, who said that her left breast was the Old Testament and her right breast was the New Testament. So weird, right? That's not how you read Song of Songs at all. Here's what you do. You get caught up in the emotion. 
You get to feel the passion, the intensity of what's going on here. And you let that passion and intensity sweep you up into a passion and intensity for Jesus, the lover of your soul. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to try and see from this book. Russ Clark says, in the song, the reader isn't some third-party observer, but a participant who's been courted. As we look at this song in the next few weeks, we should see in a sense that this is God romancing us. This is God wanting to draw out our hearts, wanting to affirm his love for us and wanting to stir up some passion and intensity and desire in us for him. Now, we're not going to read it all. Uh, Over the next four weeks, we'll just pick out various bits that hit the different themes that are going on. So if you've got your Bible or an app or whatever open, just go to the start of Song of Songs, chapter one. uh, Or you can look at the screen. We should have the words displayed there as well. I'll just start with the first four verses. Here's what it says. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and then it starts with her speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. It's a pretty high-octane start to the book from the beloved, isn't it? She's not coy. She's not holding back. She is going straight in there and stating what she wants. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses off his mouth. She's not after a peck on the cheek. She's not after an awkward Christian side hook. That's not what she wants. She wants the kisses of his mouth. Now, have you ever stopped and thought about what a kiss actually is? Like, if you had to explain it, let's, let's imagine this scenario, an alien from out of spe- outer space kind of beams down to Earth, and you've got to explain to them what is a kiss? How would you do it? What words would you use? It, it'd sound weird, right? It'd sound like a very strange thing. When you think about it, it's, it's really odd. But I think most of us know that kiss is it's a magical thing. There's no description that can really capture it. And yet hardwired into the human heart is the desire for the kiss. When a kiss happens, it changes a relationship irreversibly like once you've kissed someone it doesn't go back to how it was before Emma Ludwig says the decision to kiss for the first time is the most crucial in any love story it changes the relationship of two people much more strongly than even the final surrender because this kiss already has within it that surrender Also, the kiss is a marker of a healthy marriage. So I listened to this podcast on uh, BBC, uh, and they did this podcast called Why Do We Kiss? And they had this scientist on there who'd run kind of some social social studies uh, about marriages. And they were trying to correlate the health of a marriage to different things. And they found there's a really strong correlation between the health of a marriage and the frequency with which they kiss each other. In fact, the correlation was even stronger than with the frequency of sex. So maybe, just maybe, Cher was right all along. If you want to know if he loves you so, it's in his kiss. (laughs) Kiss is a powerful thing. It's not something to be undertaken carelessly or casually like a culture might suggest. And the Song of Songs has as much to say about waiting as it does about giving. And we'll come on to that 
later. But it starts with the bride here expressing her, her wants for his kisses. It's about desire. The dictionary defines desire as the conscious impulse towards something that promises enjoyment or satisfaction in its attainment. So you're moving towards something because you know it will be enjoyable and satisfying. That's what desire is. It propels you to the object of your desire. That's what it's doing for the bride. I remember when I was first getting to know Emma, and I remember I kept putting myself in situations where I knew she'd be around. So we were part of the same church. She headed up the um, kind of set-up and pack-down team. Guess who volunteered to be on the set-up and pack-down team? Uh, and when we were doing set-up and pack-down, there was a store cupboard, and Emma was usually in charge of the store cupboard, like making sure everything goes in the right place. Guess who kept gravitating towards the store cupboard? Because desire does that, Right. You see so many examples in the Bible of people drawn to Jesus. There's one in Luke chapter 7. So Jesus has been invited to this meal at the house of a Pharisee called Simon. They're all reclining at the table. And there's a woman who uh, had a sinful reputation who wasn't invited to that party. What does she do? She crashes the party because she wants to be around Jesus. And she sees Jesus being treated disrespectfully. He's not even been given water to wash his feet with. So she washes them with her tears and dries them with her hair. There's something about wanting to be near to him, wanting him to be honoured. Or in John 12, Mary, she pours out perfume worth a year's salary on Jesus to anoint him for what was going to happen to him. She wanted him to be treated well. She wanted the best for him. Or you see, uh, at the Last Supper, John, one of Jesus' disciples, they're all reclining, eating, and John just rests his head on Jesus' chest. He just wants his head to be as close as possible to the beating heart of the Saviour who he loves. Or Simon Peter, when lots of the disciples were walking away, and Jesus said to me, are you going to go as well? He said, well, where else would I go? It's you who has the words of eternal life. He said, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I want to be where you are. There's a desire, right? Or Moses, he says, um, when they were about to go into the promised land, God said, look, you guys can go, it's fine. Uh, And Moses says, God, if you're not going to go with me, I don't even want to bother. I only want to be where you are, God. Or David, the, uh, the psalmist, as the deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. That was the inspiration for one of the songs that we've sung earlier, isn't it? My soul longs for you, but that's what he's saying. I've got this deep, desperate longing in my soul for you. All of these people, they desire God, and kind of not not exactly the same way, but with the same strength and intensity we see here in this woman desiring her lover. Charlie Cleverly said her lover's kisses are the theme of the bride's life. It's also the theme of everyone who seeks God, to know him deeply and to be known. I wonder, just like, let's just kind of hit pause for a second. I wonder how you're finding this imagery so far. How does it sit with you? I think for some people it, it connects really well and it just speaks to uh, the, this sense of, yeah, I do want to be close to God. I do want to be drawn into him. I think for some people it tends to land as a little bit weird, odd, awkward, um, You sometimes get people who say things like, you know what, Tom, I can't really imagine kissing Jesus on the mouth. This is just a bit weird. Um, And when people try and take the spiritual stuff out of the book, that's exactly what they say. And of course, the answer to that is, 
you're not meant to imagine it. That would be a very, very odd thing. Don't think about that. That's not what it's doing. It's poetry. It's, a, it's, it's not a literal thing. The idea of the poem is to create this sense of intense longing. And the way she has that longing for the kiss, that longing is transformed into a desire in our heart for closeness with God. A desire in our heart for his presence and for intimacy with him. And to know that he responds with that same love for you. Again, Charlie Cleverly said, the kiss of God is a metaphor. It's a picture painting a thousand words. We shouldn't think of kissing Jesus in a sexual way. That's entirely outside the boundaries of God's will. Rather, think of Christ as the kiss of God to the world. When God wants to draw near, when God wants to be close to us, what does he do? He gives us his son to come to live a human life, a perfect human life, to die on the cross for our sins. So every barrier to closeness between us and God is gone. So you might be thinking, right, well, all right, I'm I'm sort of tracking with this, but what does it actually look like? What, What do I need to do then to express this desire for God? Well, here's where the kiss metaphor comes in again. It's not something you need to be taught, right? There there isn't an instruction manual out there. So it's not like kind of someone's about to kiss someone and they're working down a list like, right, step one, lean forward. Step two, put my lips... You you don't have that kind of thing. It comes natural. And in these examples that I've shown, you say like Mary pouring out the perfume on Jesus' feet or John resting his head on his chest... They didn't have a set of instructions that they were following. It's like, okay, this is how I do love for God. Oh, I'd best put my head there. It's the expression of a heart that loves him and longs for him and wants to be close to him. I discovered something as I was studying for this that I didn't know before, but I thought it was so cool. So um, there's this word in the New Testament that's usually translated as worship. In fact, most of the times we see worship, um, it's obviously translated from a Greek word. And the Greek word is called proskuneo. And proskuneo is a compound word that's made of two words put together. And the pros bit of it literally means to move towards or to draw close or to lean in. That's kind of the idea of the pros. And the kaneo bit means kiss. So when we get a word for worship, it's literally we're drawing near for a kiss or leaning for a kiss is the word that's translated worship. So if we think about the time that we worship God later, in a sense, metaphorically, as we're giving our hearts to him, as we're singing our hearts out, longing for his presence, it's like we're leaning in for the kiss of God. That's such a beautiful picture. So she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then she gives the reason. And the reason she gives is this, for your love is better than wine. Let's have another show of hands. Who likes wine? Yeah, plenty of love. I I knew that would be the case, you know. I'm not surprised at all. We had, just before Christmas, we had a a staff uh, Christmas dinner social. And for, for about... A week, uh, our staff WhatsApp group uh, was just pinging with Colin, uh, who's um, one of the the leaders, the founder of the church, just putting images of different bottles of wine that he bought ready for this thing. And everyone was getting so psyched and excited for all this wine that Colin had bought. In fact, so much so that uh, one member of the team, I'm not going to name and shame who, uh, but uh, seriously suggested setting up a wine ministry. Um, So... so, (laughs) 
whether that happens or not to, to be seen in coming weeks, I guess, wine's a good thing. And we know wine can be abused if it's drunk to excess. We know it can be problematic for some people. But the general teaching in the Bible is that wine is given by God as a blessing. In the Psalms, it says, you bring forth wine to gladden the human heart. So as good as it is, as good as the best of wine is, what she's saying here is the love of her lover is even better. That better than the best of wine is closeness with him. Better than the best of wine is drawing near to the presence of God. Being in his arms, being close to him in his presence. Amy Bird says the good news explodes in the song. It's the best wine that we don't know we were missing. Intimacy with our bridegroom. It's the wine we are invited to intoxicate ourselves with. In these verses, we see a woman who's giddy. Not giddy with wine. You can get giddy with wine, but she's giddy with love. Something about this love relationship has filled her with such joy and excitement that she's just expressing her desire for him. The verses go on. Uh, There's comparisons with oil and perfume and about being drawn up into his chambers. We could go into all of that. But there's so much here. We've only done one verse. We've been doing this for a little while, but there's so much in the imagery here. But I want to jump on just to the other little section I want to read and talk about. So do you want to just flip forward to chapter 4, verse 12, through to 5, verse 1. So now it's him speaking in this bit. Chapter 3 and 4, really what's happening in those chapters is the wedding. So uh, they've just got married, and now he's speaking to her. A garden locked is my sister my bride, a garden locked, a fountain sealed. Your channel is an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. And she responds, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, that his fragrance may be wafted abroad. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then he accepts the invitation in verse 1. I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I I gather my myrrh with my spice. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. And then we get this other voice saying, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That same image, isn't it? Be drunk with love. But with this wedding that's just happened, do you see the transition that happens as you see this imagery of the garden? In verse 12, he's describing, he says, you're a garden locked, you're a fountain sealed. And I think with this imagery of the garden, we're meant to pick up the Garden of Eden. When um, people turned away from God, the garden was sealed off. But he's describing her like that. You're a garden sealed. But then there's the, the change, isn't there, by verse 16. This garden that was sealed, now it's open. Let my beloved come to his garden, eat its choicest fruits. And he, he takes her up on it. I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. 
It's hard to miss the implications. It's hard to miss what the poetry's getting at and hinting at through these metaphors. It's interesting um, that he says in verse 5, um, gathering honey uh, and milk. Uh, that, that's promised land language, isn't it? The land of milk and honey. He's kind of using that as a comparison. And then you've got that verse right at the end. Uh, Eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. When you read the commentaries on Song of Songs, most of the commentators think that's the verse of God the Father. And looking at what's happening, looking at these two coming together and cheering it on and saying, yes, this is awesome. Let's celebrate what's happening here. But I just want to talk a a bit about this idea that the garden was sealed and then the garden's open. Keeping and giving, these two ideas that go together. These are the two gears of a relationship. Before marriage, there's keeping, there's the the garden locked. Then in marriage, there's giving, there's let my beloved come to his garden. Both of these can be challenging things in human relationships. And if you're struggling with either in your relationship, I'd encourage you, work it through with someone, get some help, get some prayer. But today, what I want to speak about is the spiritual version of this when it comes to our relationship with God. The bride's desire here for her lover means she wants to utterly give herself to him. She's inviting him to come to the garden and eat its fruits. She's kept herself for him. Now she gives herself to him. Both of these are part of what it is to have a relationship with God. There's a keeping yourself for him. It said, my heart is only for you, God. It might be all these things that want my affection, that want my love, that want my worship. I'm not going to give it to them. My heart belongs to you, God, and you only. When it comes to anything else, I'm like a garden sealed. So often when the prophets rebuke the people of Israel, they say, you haven't been faithful. You haven't kept yourself just for God. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus and says, you've forsaken your first love. You've walked away from the one you were meant to be loyal to. So there's the keeping ourselves for him. But in this, in the Song of Solomon, here we're talking about giving ourselves to him. It's possible to become so focused on, I'm going to keep myself for God. I'm going to keep myself pure. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay away from that. I'm going to get all these ducks in a row. But maybe... We've not got as far. Maybe we've not understood what it is to give ourselves to him, to give our heart, to welcome him in, to enjoy communion with him in our hearts. It's good to keep your heart for him, but don't keep your heart from him. Give your heart to the Lord. How much do we know what it is to do that? How much do we know what it is to draw close, to meet with him, to enjoy his presence? To invite him, to issue those words, come to your garden. That's the desire of the bride's heart here. I used to really struggle with this, like really struggle. We'd be in prayer meetings and, you know, in prayer meetings, right, someone will sometimes say something like, shall we just spend a few minutes waiting on the Lord? Shall we just be in his presence for a bit? All right, confession time, which uh, as a like church leader, this is a bad thing to confess. When that happened, I'd usually think, do we have to? That doesn't sound very interesting because I came in with a list of all the things I want to happen and we should pray for those things. This feels like a waste of time because I didn't understand what it was to just invite God, come into your garden, let's enjoy your presence, let's be together, let's just enjoy the closeness with the Lord. This is something I've learned and grown in over the years. 
You see, one of the amazing truths of the gospel is that we're united with Jesus. That Jesus' very presence is with us. That he comes into us, in our hearts, even closer than the metaphor of lovers would suggest. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells inside us, in our hearts. So the level of intimacy we can have with him is more even than the Song of Songs would talk about. Love for God and the love of God isn't something to be scared of. It's not something to be intimidated by. It's what we were made for. God created us to enjoy and experience closeness with him. I want us to see this as a moment to accept the invitation that the song offers. God wants our hearts. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. There's some more words in chapter 2 of the song where he says, Come away with me, my love. Where he says, as we've seen in chapter 5, I will come to my garden. He wants to be close. He wants to meet with you. He wants you to know his presence. And this is a moment, like the bride, for us to express what we long for. To get raw and passionate and intimate and demanding in our desire for God. She wants the kisses of her lover's mouth. What do you desire from the Lord, the lover of your soul? How do you want him to meet with you? Today we get permission. In fact, more than that, we get positively encouraged to draw near to him. And there's a promise in the Bible, in in the book of James. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you.